0: Open those Bibles to our favorite book, 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to launch into our passage, verses 5 through 11. And we're going to look deeply into this passage. We have been preparing and preparing and a number of weeks in introducing this passage and plowing up the fallow ground, getting ready to look at what God has to say to us. And so I want you to read with me, beginning at verse 5 through verse 11, this marvelous, marvelous passage. Peter says, For this very reason, and we'll look at that, you might want to underline that phrase, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, And to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in, now notice this, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How many want a rich welcome into that kingdom? How many want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, we're talking about the subject of assurance of salvation. How many remember? We're talking about the subject of assurance of salvation, and I've had a number of people come and share with me this past week, actually past couple weeks, That for years they have doubted and wondered and uh, been fearful that they weren't Christians, they were unsure, and this series has been a source of great encouragement to them. Uh, I hope it has been so also to you. So, we're talking about assurance of salvation. This is a very, very important subject because there are so many Christians apparently who lack that assurance, who are not sure of their salvation. They're unsure of the work of God in their life. And this, again, is particularly sad because, beloved, God wants us to have full assurance. God wants us to know what he has done. He wants us to be confident of his grace and mercy and forgiveness to us. How many parents do we have? Parents, you want to keep your kids constantly guessing about your love? No, you want your kids to be sure and confident you want that to be a settled issue. So it's a platform for them now to begin to launch out and live their life, a platform of security. Does that make sense? The same thing is true of God in our lives. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, uh, God wants us to make our hope sure. The writer to the Hebrews says that. Remember, the Hebrews were, were a, a congregation of people, some of which had not come fully into faith. And there are those number of warning passages throughout that letter that, that urges them to come fully to faith. He wants us to be to make our hope sure. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, uh, he wants us to draw near to him with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. God wants us to be confident. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, John says much the same thing. Uh, God wants us to set our hearts at rest, not to be anxious about. Our salvation, our eternal destiny. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, he wants us to have all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Nothing lacking. He wants us to come in and enjoy fully that which he has already done and prepared for us. Remember, in, uh, we looked at 1 uh, Corinthians chapter uh, 1 last week, chapter 2, and uh, Paul said that. Uh, Uh, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of that which God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even begin to comprehend what God has prepared for us. And he wants us, as much as we're able, to enjoy all of his grace and all of his love and his abundance, beginning now. I came that you should have life and have it to the max. Didn't he say that? All right. So, every Christian, let me just make a generalized statement. Every Christian. Would you agree with me? Should enjoy the reality of his or her salvation? Should we enjoy that? Absolutely. That's right. Every true Christian. And not to have that assurance. Now think about this. Not to have that assurance of salvation is to really live in doubt. It's to live in fear. It's to live in a certain form of spiritual depression or spiritual misery. God does not want us to be depressed people. He wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt what he's done for us. Not living in fear, not living in doubt. If you lack assurance, if you're always wondering, if you don't know when you've fallen short, if you've fallen short, how you've fallen short, if, that, if that's going to throw you off in terms of your salvation, you never have confidence. And not to have confidence means that you're unable to delight in God. Do you suppose that God wants us to delight in him? Oh, my. Oh, my, certainly. He's our heavenly what? Father. And he wants us to delight in him. He wants us to to come to him. He wants us to enjoy as well as obey. And if you don't have confidence, if you don't have assurance, then you're not going to be able to delight in him. And you'll be unable to enjoy the anticipation of all of his promises. I remember growing up as a little kid, When I was uh, just a youngster, Disneyland first opened. And uh, I'll never forget, my parents had promised to take us to Disneyland. It just opened. And uh, and I lived in a neighborhood over here in Manhattan Beach where there were just tons of kids. And, And so a whole bunch of families were getting together, and all the parents were taking all the kids. You could cut the anticipation with a knife. They had a date. They told us when they're going to take us. We wake every, up every morning and say, what? Is today the day? Are we going today? Are we going today? Right? <laughs> we enjoy the anticipation of the promise of going to Disneyland. And beloved, God wants us to enjoy the anticipation of the promise of eternal life in heaven and all of its glories. But if you have not assurance of salvation, you're not going to enjoy that. You're going to constantly be fretting and wondering and worrying. Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? When, in fact, you're never good enough. Isn't that true, Anthony? Never good enough? We trust in whose goodness? Christ's goodness. Amen. All right. Jay, give him a high five. You got the right answer. All right. You little know the disciples are doing good over there, Mike. If I'm, if I'm to enjoy, if I'm to enjoy, now think about this, all that is mine in Christ, then I have to know that I'm in Christ, right? If I don't know I'm in Christ, I'm not going to enjoy anything that's promised to me. Now, Peter is very, very concerned that his readers and then every succeeding generation of the church would read this letter. He is concerned that we enjoy assurance. This is his main, one of his main themes in this letter. The dominant theme, remember, is found in chapter 2. The dominant theme is that of addressing false teachers. False teaching, he describes, he devotes all in chapter 2 to describing false teachers, and he does so in a very graphic way, in very clear terms. But chapter 2 is surrounded by other teaching. Now, remember, we have to keep in focus the central theme of this letter, and that is false teachers. But chapter 2 is surrounded by other teaching that is directed at successfully countering the false teachers. In other words, in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, Peter tells believers how to be equipped to deal with false teachers. We should want to know how to be equipped. He says, in fact, there's some things that we need to know if we are to be equipped against false teachers, and believe me, uh, the world has always been full of false teachers and false teaching, and today is no different. There's all manner of things being spread abroad today. And because of our, our, our the, the media that we have available to us and all the technology, uh, there's all kinds of things out there to uh, confuse us. So there's some things we've got to know. What must we know? Well, three things. We started off our series several weeks ago. And we said uh, in, in Chapter 1, verses 12 through 21, Peter tells us, and that's going to be our next subject for discussion as we get into that passage, we must know the Scripture. If you're going to counter, if you're going to be able to recognize and be able to stand against false teaching, you've got to know the Scripture. The tragedy is that so many Christians don't know the Scripture. They're not reading the Bible. They're not reading to, to learn it so that they can know it, so they can obey it. And that's why so many times you get Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on your door They know the verses. They can can run circles around most Christians just with verses. And the truth be known, most Christians don't know the Scriptures well enough to talk back, to argue back, to, to give a defense for why we believe what we believe. So if we're to counter false teaching, then we must know the Scripture. Implicit in that is what? Reading it. At the very minimum, just reading it. Secondly, in chapter 3, Peter tells us, we must know our sanctification. What is that all about? Sanctification. Oh, we're going to dive into that. We're going to spend a lot of time in that subject when we get to chapter 3. And then in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, the passage we are presently studying, Peter tells us we must know our what? Salvation. We must know our salvation. We must know what what makes it up, where it comes from, what, 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 what's the substance of our salvation, how sufficient is it, and so forth. How certain is it? We must know our salvation. Beloved, if you know the Scripture, if you know the Scripture, if you know that you are sanctified, that means you're set apart from sin to God. This is the work of God in your life. If you know that, and if you know that your salvation is real then the deceptions of false teachers can not only be recognized, but they can be easily resisted. No confusion, no doubt. You can spot them coming a mile away, and you can say, that is not true. That is not true. If you don't know the Scripture, if you do not know and are not experiencing a continued state of sanctification, And if you are not sure of your salvation, then you become a ready victim to false teachers, false doctrine. And we certainly don't want to become ready victims, do we? Certainly don't want to become ready victims. Now, we're looking at that section on salvation. We're looking at verses 3 through 11. Knowing your salvation. That is very, very essential in terms of our first line of defense against false teaching. I've got to know what my salvation is about. I've got to know what it means to be saved. I've got to know the extent of my salvation. I have to understand salvation because there are so many people who offer so many other routes to salvation. Isn't that true? All kinds of ways to get to God. All kinds of ways to uh, uh, get to heaven or nirvana or some crazy place. And so we want to know about our salvation. Beloved, if you have on, Paul says, he says it in Thessalonians, and he repeats himself again in Ephesians, if you have on the helmet of the hope of salvation, then when Satan throws his, his, uh, his, uh, his lies and his deceptions at you, uh, they will just, quite frankly, bounce off. You will be able to thwart them when he comes against you to make you doubt doubt God's work then you can easily, easily resist them. You are protected from false teachers if you have on that helmet of the hope of your salvation. You're protected from false teachers. You're protected from demon spirits. Isn't that glorious? So many people are worried and wondered about demons and demons and demons. If you've got on the helmet of the hope of salvation, guess what? Demons don't have an effect on you. Satan himself doesn't have an effect on you. This is why it's so important to know the truth. Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will what? Set you free. You, they can throw all the onslaughts at you that they want. But beloved, if you have on that helmet of the hope of salvation, uh, you are protected. So the first line of defense is that you must know your salvation. And again, this is so redundant. and so we're talking about this again and again and again. And believe me, um, I believe it's absolutely critical because, again, there are so many Christians, and even some in our own church, who are still not yet sure about their salvation. So we're revisiting this. Verses 5-11, as we look at those verses, speaks now, Peter speaks to the certainty of our salvation. What does he speak to? The certainty of our salvation. I don't know if I gave you a blank for that, but if I didn't, write that down. In, in verse 1 of chapter 1, Uh, Peter wrote about the source of our salvation. What is the source of our salvation? God. Thank you very much. Somebody knows. God is the source of our salvation. Are we in agreement? Okay. It's not my works. It's not my good looks. It's not because I'm having a good hair day. It's not I'm a nice guy. None of that is the source. It's not that I'm religious. It's not that I walk down and put money in the bucket. God is the source of my salvation. And we went on and we looked at verse 2, and we said that that, there is substance, that our salvation is substantial. And the substance of that salvation is the truth, is the truth of God and Jesus Christ. And knowing Him, epignosos, The intensified form of the word for knowledge, epignosos, it means to to have full knowledge, complete knowledge, intensive knowledge, if you will, and that is the knowledge of relationship. It's not just knowing the cursory facts. And then we look at verses 3 and 4, and verses 3 and 4 dealt with the sufficiency of our salvation. How sufficient is that salvation that we have received? How sufficient is it? And now in our section, verses 5 to 11, We're dealing with the certainty of our salvation. And, beloved, this is crucial if we are indeed to withstand the onslaughts of false teachers. Why? Because false teachers will always try to tell you another way of what? Salvation. That's right. Another way of salvation. But if I know where I stand in terms of salvation and there is no question, then there is no attraction to me from false teaching. None whatsoever. I don't need to hear somebody somebody else's gospel. I know the truth. I know the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, as we look into this passage, I want to just recall your attention back to verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, we saw that uh, Peter tells us that we have most of everything that we need, right? What do we have? We have everything we need. We have been given. This is, this is absolutely remarkable. We have been given everything we need for what? Life and godliness. Do you suppose anything is left out? No. Everything means what? Everything. That's right. Everything we need for life, to live life, both here temporally and forever, everything we need to be The kind of people God intends for us to be, both now and forever, we have already been given by His divine power. Wow. Wow, isn't that rich? That's the sufficiency of our salvation. That's how sufficient our salvation is. And yet, you go on now to verses 5 through 11, and look at what He tells us. This is mind-blowing. And yet, Peter says, we have to do everything that we can possibly do to add to what Christ has done. You say, wait a minute. How can you add to what Christ has done? Has Christ given me everything? He's given me everything, hasn't he? And yet, verses 5 to 11 says what? Now, add to it. Question. How do you add to everything? How do you add to everything? You see? That is that amazing paradox. This amazing paradox of being complete in Christ and yet having to do everything in our strength to follow him. And so we find then in verses 5-11, to Peter gives us, note this please, In verses 5 to 11, he gives us now the path to assurance. This is the path to assurance. This is how, when he says in verse 10, make certain your election and calling, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, this is how you make it sure. This is how you come and arrive at assurance. This is how you know beyond a shadow of a doubt who you are, what you are in Christ. Okay? Now, let's look at verse 5. Look at the very first phrase. For this very reason. You see that? For this very reason. Question. What reason? What reason? Well, let's go back and read verses 3 and 4. That phrase refers back to verses 3 and 4. Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. And through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, for this very reason, in other words, because of all that is yours in Christ, now do this now do this. Do you follow? Do you see that? Because of everything you've gotten, all that you've received in Christ, verses 3 and 4, now, he says, do this. And here again is the mystery of spiritual life. We are given everything, everything in Christ, and yet it takes everything we have to follow up on that. Everything. We are called upon to give, now note this, maximum effort. Do we give maximum effort at anything? (laughs) The truth be known, probably not. But he's calling us to give maximum effort. And this is the most important thing that you and I can do in response to what Christ has done for us. Give maximum effort. And you see, when you are doing this, the false teachers have nothing to offer you. Nothing to offer you. Not at all. So, for this very reason, for this very reason, because of all that we have in Christ, let's add to it. Let's add to it in order that we may enjoy its benefits. And what's its benefit? Assurance. Assurance. How many want to be absolutely, totally sure that you have everything, everything ne- is necessary for life and God? How many want to be absolutely No doubts. Sure. The only way you're going to be absolutely sure is if you add to what Christ has done the next verses, 5, 6, and 7, the things that Peter tells us. And verse 5 calls for a diligent effort, maximum effort. He says, for this very reason, make every effort. Make every effort. And literally, if you were to translate it directly from the Greek, It would translate this way, bringing in all diligence. Bringing in all diligence. Now, now I want to break these verses up into four sections, by the way. Before I forget, I want to tell you about this. There's four subsections to uh, verses 5 through 11. Let me give them to you. The first section, we're going to study the first two this morning and the last two next time. The first two, uh, the effort prescribed. So Peter's going to prescribe for us the effort that's necessary that we have assurance. Secondly, the virtues pursued. What are we to pursue to ensure that we have this assurance? There's an effort and there's something to be pursued, and those are the virtues he lists. Thirdly, the options presented. What are our options? And fourthly, the benefits promised. What benefits then will accrue to us? But let's start with the first one. What's the first subset? The effort prescribed. What effort? What what effort are we being called upon? Now, as a sidelight to this, as we we think about the effort and we begin to study this effort issue in verse 5, you might think that after verses 3 and 4, after he says that we have Everything we need, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness and so forth, and we have all of his promises. You might think that the very next statement might be, so let go and let God, right? He's done it all. He's given us everything. Now, this is where some people's thinking goes off. Why? Because they've not read the Bible. They don't understand what God says. We don't say, well, I've got it all, so shoot. Hey, kick back, relax, enjoy yourself, let God, right? Do we say that? We're tempted to. I can't tell how many times I've heard that or had that intimated, in other words. No, just the opposite. Just the opposite. The effort prescribed in verse 5 again, the effort prescribed, if you're a Christian, get ready, here it comes. for For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Every effort, that's the effort prescribed. That's the effort prescribed because of God's saving work in us and because of its complete sufficiency. It's like Paul, when Paul says what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. How many are familiar with those two verses? Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, continue to what? Work for your salvation, right? Is that what he says? No, he says what? Work it out. Work it out. That's the same thing that Peter is saying here. You have it. God has put it in. Now you, what? Work it out. So the very thing that Paul says there, Peter says here in our passage. Different words. Same idea, same implication. If you've ever wondered, how does one work out their salvation, this is how you do it. Peter gives us much more detail in verses 5 through 7. Okay? So God put it in you. You work it out. It's all there. Takes away all of our excuses, doesn't it, Anthony? No excuses. We can't say, oh, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Are you Christian? Yes. Okay. Has God given you every resource? I talked to a couple last night, late into the night after the service last night. Marriage is just a mess. They've been at each other's throats for 10 years. She's up to here. She's out of here. He's angry. He's yelling. He's screaming, driving her further away. So who do you think I focused on? Who? Who did I focus on? Let's vote. Let's vote. Who did I focus on? Did I focus on the wife? How many, if you you think I focused on the wife, raise your hand. Real high, real high. Come on, you (laughs) scaredy-crazy. Laura, come on. Did I focus on the husband? Yeah. Why is she out of here? It's his fault. So I began to tell him what he has to do. He sat here and listened to the same sermon last night. I said, are you Christian? Yes. Has God given you everything you need for life and godness? He said, Well, how do I get it? You already got it. But see, here's the problem the connection. I got it. How do I get it? You know what I'm saying? How, how does it work? Faith. You take a step of faith. That's all. You take a step of faith. To what? Do what he says. A step of faith and obedience, and what do you begin to realize? The power and the grace of God. Isn't that true? Simple, isn't it? Make every effort. I said to him, have you made every effort? I said, yeah. He said, yes, I did. I said, no, you haven't. If you made every effort, you wouldn't be leaving. You haven't made every effort. You've gone to everybody. You've seen counselors. You've seen therapists. You've been through this, that, and the other thing. You have not obeyed the word of God. You have not walked in faith. You have not trusted God and done what he has said so that he can bring about the fruition of what he said to your life. It's not all that complicated. Make every effort now, he says, bring all diligence to add to your faith or to supply to your faith. Let me take you a little more deeply into that that statement. Make every effort. Make every effort. Literally, bringing all diligence. All diligence. What does that mean? It means making the maximum effort. Making the, yeah, but I've tried, it's hard, I get tired, I get weary. I understand that. Don't give up. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, persevere. Don't quit. Make every effort, maximum effort. That's the idea. And bring alongside what God has done already. Making every effort. God has done all of this, and you bring alongside every effort. Now, the Greek word that Peter translates, or we translate here in the NIV, we translate it effort or diligence. It's a strong word. The Greek word is spudo. It's a very strong word in the Greek. And it means eagerness, hastiness, zeal. It's a very strong, very dynamic word. He says, bring every, every eagerness, every all zeal, all hastiness, alongside of what God has done, what God has already done, you, your part, bring in every zealous, eager, hasty, hurried effort. Do we do that? No. Most of the times we bring in haphazard efforts. We try, we don't see any results immediately. And we really are into getting back feedback right away, aren't we? And we get back negative feedback, and then what happens? We quit. That's why it has to be zealous, eager effort, maximum effort, to bring you through the initial resistance and difficulty of the circumstance because you know that God is working on your behalf. So Peter's saying, alongside what God has done, bring in every zealous, eager Hasty, hurried effort. And then the word add to do you see that? Make every effort to add to. This also is an interesting word. In fact, it is a really colorful word, the very picture picture word in the Greek, fascinating word. It means literally to give lavishly, to give generously. The the, the the translation, add to, kind of loses something in the translation, doesn't it? It means make every effort zealously, passionately, to give lavishly, give exorbitantly, give generously. Wow, that's a lot different, isn't it? Don't you wish the translators would translate it that way? You say, well, how do you translate a word... By the way, that word means actually the word in the Greek is translated choir master. That's the that's where the word comes from. Choirmaster or choir director. You say, well how do you how do you uh, uh translate a word that means choir master uh to the word supply or add to? Where do you get that? Well, because the choir master, back in ancient Greece, the choir master had the responsibility to supply everything that was needed for the choir. So the word came to mean supplier. A choir master was synonymous with a supplier. Let me read to you from William Barclay's commentary on this. He has such a marvelous picture of this. He's talking about the word epikorygene. Epikorygene. He says this is one of the many Greek words which have a pictorial background. The verb, epicorygrain, comes from the noun korygos, which literally means the leader of a chorus. So a korygos was the leader of a chorus. Perhaps the greatest gift that Greece, and especially Athens, gave to the world was the great works of men like uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, which are still among its most cherished possessions. All these plays needed large choruses and were, therefore, very expensive to produce. In the great days of Athens, there were public-spirited citizens who voluntarily took on the duty at their own expense of collecting, maintaining, training, and equipping such choruses. It was at the great religious festivals that all of these plays were produced. So because these plays were all produced around the religious festivals, they had to be excellent. He says, for instance, at the city of Dionysia, there were produced three tragedies, five comedies, and five dithyrambs. Men had to be found to provide the choruses for them all, a duty which could cost tremendous amounts of money. The men who undertook these duties out of their own pocket and out of love for their city were called choregai koregai, and the koregain was the verb used for undertaking such a duty. The word has a certain lavishness in it. It never means to equip in a cheap, miserly way. It means lavishly to pour out everything that is necessary for a noble performance. Epe went out into the larger world, and it grew to mean not only to equip a chorus, but to be responsible for any kind of equipping, any kind of supplying. So you see where the word began. Uh, Korygos, leader of the, of the chorus, to actually do that was epichorygene. That would be the verb, or, or korygene. Then epichorygene is the intensified form of the verb, and that leads us, that's the very word the Holy Spirit uses here. So when he says he says, add to, supply, the, 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 the marvel of that word is that we are to supply, we are to add to our faith lavishly, generously, abundantly, much as the ancient Greeks produced on these lavish and abundant uh, uh, performances of these plays and such because they surrounded religious services. And how appropriate for us that we should also, as we live our Christian lives, supply and add to our faith. How? Lavishly. And abundantly in a marvelous word that the Holy Spirit chose to use, tremendous. Now back again in verse five, he says, "For this very reason, because of all that Christ has done for you, has He done much for you? Lavishly, generously, superboundingly? Absolutely." He says, "Supplying all diligence or making every effort, add to lavishly, generously." Not in a cheap, shallow, or miserly way at all. He says, and then now comes this next little phrase, add to what? Your faith. Add to your faith. Now faith is assumed here. Faith is assumed here. It is that which was received back up in verse 1. If you look back up in verse 1, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a what? A faith. That's the faith he's talking about. Now you've received that faith from God. Now add to it. How should we add to it? Lavishly, generously, abundantly. That's how we should add to it. So in your faith, in your initial believing in Jesus Christ, you need to lavishly apply all zeal, all energy, to come alongside what Christ has done and do everything you can possibly do. Is that simple? That's what he says, isn't it? Now, somebody might say, well, isn't there there assurance in faith? What do you think? Is there assurance in faith? Yes, of course. We've been talking about that. There is assurance in faith. The one who believes in Jesus Christ has every reason to be assured if you know you believe. True? And then the God of hope, says Paul in Romans uh, chapter 15, verse 13, the God of hope can fill you with all joy and all peace in believing. So there can be joy, there can be peace, just in believing. Now pay attention. Faith carries with it assurance. What did I just say? All right. Faith carries with it. The fact that I believe, the fact that I know that I believe and I know in whom I believe and I know what I believe, that carries with it assurance. But, and this is a very, very important issue because Peter addresses this, I don't believe that initial saving faith will continue to yield the fruit of assurance unless the effort is made to be obedient to what Peter says in these following verses. You may enjoy that assurance initially. You may be excited. You may have the fullness of peace and joy initially. But if no zealous effort to lavishly supply what is required alongside what Christ has done, then, beloved, I believe there will be a forfeiture of the joy, a forfeiture of the peace of assurance. Why? Because your initial faith, your initial flush of enthusiasm. How many Christians, how many older Christians have you met? I've met tons over the years who said, oh, I'd like to be around those brand new believers. Why? Because they're so excited. They're so on fire. Why are they so on fire? Because they know what God has done. They're excited. They're experiencing this new life. There's a joy and a peace and enthusiasm in about their faith. And as you get older in the Lord, you lose that peace and joy and excitement. You kind of settle in to a kind of plodding along in your Christian faith. God doesn't mean for that to be happening to any of us. He wants us to be full of joy and peace and assurance. And in order to do so, I believe, that's why Peter writes what he writes. There is a prescription given here. There's a prescription given here, and that prescription is make every effort to add these things. The fullness of assurance, listen carefully, the fullness of assurance is the product of, of zealous effort to tap the full supply of spiritual virtue and lay it alongside the full supply of God's gracious provision. And so full assurance comes to a believer who follows that prescription. Let's look. Let's look at those at those virtues. What am I supposed to do? What does the believer need to pursue exactly in his or her life? What is Peter calling us to? to lay aside our faith. Well, look at at verses 5 through 7. How many virtues are there, by the way? Anybody know? Did you count them? Seven virtues. You've already answered one of the questions, your daily hope. Seven virtues. Now, these virtues, as I talk to you about them, they are incredibly, incredibly interdependent and intertwined with each other. Let me explain to you what I mean. These virtues, each, are embodied somehow in the previous one. Now, in the the English translation, it's add to, add to your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and so forth. You see that? That's That's a simplified translation. In the Greek, the word, it's not add to, it's in. The preposition in is used, which makes it a little bit more complicated and a little bit more complex in how these virtues interact. And I want to try to explain that to you. The idea in the Greek language to develop one virtue in the exercise of another. So as I'm exercising one of these virtues, I'm simultaneously developing the next one. Do you follow? Each new grace springing out of The attempting and the perfecting of the other. It's not just a simple layering on top. Okay, now I'm gonna, now I'm gonna add knowledge. Now I'm gonna add, no, no, no. It's much, much more dynamic than that. It's not a static process. It's a dynamic kind of process. Let's look at the first one. What's the first virtue? Goodness. If you have the NIV NIV translation, it's translated goodness. Some of the other translations is translated virtue or moral excellence. So goodness, virtue, it carries with it the idea of moral excellence. Add to your faith lavishly, zealously. What should you add? Moral excellence. Because of what Christ has done, this is what you do now. Your first step in receiving after you receive Christ, you add to your faith. What? Moral excellence. Moral excellence. The Greek word is arete. Arete. And uh, in classical times, the word was used to mean the God, and I love this definition, the God-given ability to perform heroic deeds. Don't you love that? The God, has God given us the ability absolutely, to perform heroic deeds? This is a heroic deed. Would you agree? In classical Greek times, that's what the word meant. The God-given ability to accomplish and to perform heroic deeds. It came to mean the quality of someone's life, which makes them stand out as excellent. Excellent, not just good, excellent, excellent. It's a term of moral heroism. It was usually used to refer to the proper and excellent fulfillment of something. Let me give you some examples. The Greeks would say that a knife was erete if it cut sharply and cleanly. The Greeks would say that a horse was arete if it ran strongly and powerfully. They would say that a singer was arete if that singer, male or female, sang well, excellently. Sometimes the word meant courage. Sometimes it meant efficient excellence. So Peter says, in your faith, In your faith, with all your heart, with all your mind, apply with great effort, apply with great eagerness, apply with zeal and haste the lavish supplying of what? Moral excellence. Goodness of character to your life. That's what he says. Can I ask you a question? I'm going to anyway. Where do you find the model of that excellence? Jesus Christ. He's the model. Note this. This is why I believe Paul says what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says this marvelous thing, and in saying this, as we're going to look at this verse, it's a, it's a statement like Paul that lays down for every Christian. This lays down for every Christian the pattern for our behavior. And what does he say in that verse? I press on, does that sound like a strong term? I press on to what lay hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What's he talking about there? What's he saying? What's he pursuing? What's he pressing on to lay hold of? What is he pressing on to lay hold of, do you think? Anybody think about this? Christlikeness. Christlikeness. When we were created in the beginning, we were created in the image of God. Sin has defaced that image. The whole process of God saving us and redeeming us and bringing us back is summed up in Paul's statements in Romans chapter 8. He says the purpose of God is to what? Make us like who? Jesus. To restore the image. Paul, understanding that, he's saying, I'm pressing on to lay hold of that which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Why did he lay hold of me? That i be like him. I'm pressing on so that I, what, may be like him. What's my goal? To be like him. Is your goal to be like Jesus? I hope so. Is your goal to be like Jesus? If your goal is to be like Jesus, and Jesus rewards you by making you like Him, then the goal and the reward are what? Identical. I press on to lay hold of. That's my goal. That which Christ Jesus laid hold of me, that's the reward. They're identical. Are you following me? That's why Peter says, make every effort. Zealous. Zealous effort, everything, everything you do to what? Attain Christ's likeness, moral excellence, be like him. Isn't that beautiful? That leads us to the second of these virtues. The second. He says, and in goodness or virtue or moral excellence, however you want to translate that. And in what's the second virtue? Knowledge, oh, my, 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 knowledge. Beloved, please note this. Moral excellence, moral excellence couldn't happen unless at its heart is what? Knowledge. At its heart has to be knowledge. So while you're pursuing moral excellence, what must you be simultaneously pursuing? Knowledge. Spiritual insight, spiritual discernment spiritual understanding. And so we want to pursue virtue. We want to pursue goodness. We want to pursue moral excellence. Understanding that in our goodness there must be spiritual knowledge. There must be spiritual discernment. We must know before we can live. Write that down. We must know before we can live. If you know not the truth, How in the world can you live it out? If you're pursuing that, people people say, well, I want to be like Jesus, but I don't know how to get there. I don't know. Read your Bible. I told this husband last night, I said, you get your Bible out. You start reading those Gospels. You read those Gospels. You find every verse, New Testament, Old Testament, talks about Jesus. You become an intimate, personal follower of Jesus. You can quote him you'll become like him. You'll become like him. We must understand how we are to conduct our lives before we can conduct our lives in the way that God calls us. Does that make sense? So virtue, goodness, is dependent upon nosos, Greek word for knowledge. Moral excellence is dependent on knowledge, knowledge of a high character and knowledge of a high quality. And this, of course, involves a diligent study in the pursuit of what the truth where where in the Word of God here it comes again read your Bible read the Bible read the Bible all bound up now all bound up with true knowledge and true discernment is here comes the third one what's the third one self-control Again, the word literally means, in the Greek, holding oneself in. We all know that, don't we? If you're overweight, you hold yourself in. Especially when your picture's been taken, you don't have a shirt on. <laughs> hold yourself in. In Peter's day, it was used of athletes. Athletes were self-controlled, self-restrained self-disciplined they beat their bodies into submission by the way paul uses that phrase talking about his own pursuit of excellence in 1 corinthians chapter 9 verse 27 there's a common phrase to beat your body into submission these athletes abstain from unhealthy food from wine and drink and from uh, sexual indulgence to keep themselves in the best possible shape, but what for? Athletic achievement. Athletic achievement. That was the the high point of the Greek experience. Athletic achievement. So Peter says, pursue goodness. Pursue goodness, realizing that at the heart of goodness is what? Knowledge or spiritual discernment. And realizing that at the heart of spiritual discernment is self-control at the heart of these things. What does it matter if I discern if I don't control? How can I be morally excellent? You follow my logic? Are you with me? Somebody, turn to your neighbor. So are you following this? Work hard now. Work hard to stay with him. All right. Some of you are dozing. Some of you are going like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> by the way, by the way, false teachers, false teachers typically claim that their knowledge, that which they will instruct in, would free them from the need for self-control. Yes. If you study the ancient pagan religions, if you study those the counterparts of the ancient pagan religions today hold new age religions. Do they talk about self control? Uh-uh. Not at all. They preach license to indulge. Have it your way. Right? Have it your way. They were greedy, they were exploiters, they followed their own lusts. And Peter will say much about that when we get into chapter 2. They, false teachers, restrained nothing. But so Peter reverses that, and he says, any theology, any theology that divorces itself from faith, or I should say, uh, divorces faith from conduct, is heresy. There ought to be a direct connection between faith and conduct. Anything less. Lacking self-control is heresy. Faith, he says, and in that faith, goodness. And in that goodness, spiritual discernment or knowledge. And in that spiritual discernment, self-control. This is essential to Christian living. This is essential to Christian living. I like hearing myself talk. This is essential to Christian living. Controlling fleshly desires. Controlling fleshly desires consistent with what I know about truth for the sake of producing goodness or moral excellence. Essential for Christian living. Virtue then, goodness, moral excellence, guided by knowledge, disciplines desire, and makes it the servant, not the master of one's life. We have appetites, But those appetites are not to master us. Would you agree? That's self-control. Then he says, in your self-control, here comes the next one, in your self-control, hupe mone. Did you see that? Hupe What is that? Perseverance or endurance. Endurance. I like the word endurance a little bit better than perseverance. Endurance. Endurance in doing what is right. Endurance in doing what is right. So in your self-control, enduring in what is doing right. Never giving up to temptation. Never giving up to trial, never giving up to difficulty, never giving up to sin. You would rather die than to give in. Now ask yourself that question. Does that mark my life? Does that kind of endurance mark my life? I'd rather die than give in? Kill me. I'm not giving in. <laughs> the truth be known, I would say that for most of us, no, that doesn't mark our life. For all of us, it doesn't mark our life. This is what he's calling us to. You say, but that's impossible. But try it at least. (laughs) At the heart of this enduring, persevering virtue is the next one, number five. What is that? Eusebia is a Greek word, eusebia, translated godliness. This is a marvelous word. Let me fill out your understanding of this word that the Holy Spirit chooses. It means a practical awareness of God in every area of life. Ooh, let me say that again. A practical awareness of God in every area of life. This is the essence of a reverent life. This is the essence of a godly life. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6 puts it simply this way. In all your ways, what? Acknowledge him. This is Eusebius, godliness. This virtue brings you to the place where you, in all your ways, acknowledge him. It's a word to describe someone who truly worships whose life is lived as an act of worship. And shouldn't our lives be lived that way? It gives God his rightful place. A person who is eusebia is a person who indeed worships God as he ought to be worshipped. And so we are to pursue lavishly, zealously, eagerly, with passion, goodness. And in the heart of that goodness is a focus on God. That's a focus on God. To sum up all that the Greeks said about this word Eusebia or this idea of being God conscious, they really had a real full grasp of the, of the word and all that it meant. They said that this word included all the rituals connected to worship. But not only that, they said that this word eusebia included loyalty to God. But in addition to that, they said this word included respect toward everything that belonged to God. And they said also that it included the spirit of devotion to the will of God. That's just from a Greek perspective. What should be the Christian perspective? This is a pagan Greek perspective. What should the Christian perspective be? If the Greeks have this word has this kind of expansive meaning, what should we look Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Paul sums it up very simply in this verse. He says, Physical training is of some value, but godliness, now notice, godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. The believer is to worship God. The believer is to love God. The believer is to adore God not with just external things, not just with stained glass, not just with organ music or buildings, beloved, but with a life of reverence for God and devotion to His holy will. Amen? In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, you know that familiar verse, the Apostle Paul says, in view of God's mercy to you, he says, I urge you to offer your body as a living what? Sacrifice, Sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. He says, this is how you worship God with your life. Eusebius. Eusebius. Godliness. Wow. Do you know that there can be so much wrapped up in one little word? If there is, I can find it. Isn't that true? (laughs) We want to be like David. Psalm 16. Look at what David says. I have set the Lord always before me. Oh, my. Godliness. I have set the Lord always before me. This is to be our commitment. False teachers are just the opposite. False teachers have no true reverence for God. They know not God. And false teachers have no true devotion to His holy will, just to their will. True Christians pursue practical awareness of God in every detail of life. We are characterized by a deep reverence for God, which leads to leads to courageous, steadfast, joyful, self-control under temptation, built on spiritual discernment in the pursuit of moral excellence, and then the sixth virtue in verse 7, the sixth virtue with that. Brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. Philadelphian. How many have heard of that? That's right. The the city of brotherly love. Brotherly affection. Friendship. Mutual sacrifice for each other. Note this, please. At the heart of godliness. At the heart of Eusebia. Just as in all these other virtues, at the heart of godliness, the heart of reverencing God is loving each other. First John, First John chapter 4, John puts it very simply. He says, if you love God, you will love each other. You'll love each other. See, if you love God, if you're Eusebia, if you adore God, if you worship God, the outflow of that is what? You have to, of necessity, then love your brother. Brotherly kindness. So if you are a true worshiper, if you are really Eusebia, if you are truly godly, if you're truly reverent, you will show affection towards your brother. And those two things are really inseparably linked. Let me show you again. What is what are the two great commandments? What's the first one? Love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, Jesus says, is like the first. They're inseparably linked. You must also then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, He says, all the law and the prophets are contained in those two commandments, the commands of love. If you just look at the Ten Commandments, the first half of the Ten Commandments talk about loving God. How do I love God? Ten, first half of the Ten Commandments. Uh, second half, Ten Commandments, talk about loving your neighbor. And then he says, and in your brotherly kindness, here comes the last one, and in your brotherly kindness, love, love. How many know the Greek word for love? That's right, agape. 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 Is that right, Stephanie? How do you pronounce it? Agape or agape? Agape? Agape. That's good. All right, Stephanie is my Greek scholar, true Greek, full-blooded Greek, speaks and understands it fluently. Always checking on me. Agape, sacrificial, selfless. This is the love of the will. This is the love of choice. This is the love of volition. It is not the love of emotion. Well, I don't love you because I don't feel like it. I don't care if you feel like it or not. That is not the issue. This is the love of the will, of emotion. I will love you. I love you because I choose to love you. Isn't that great? Whew. This is the highest virtue, isn't it? This is the highest virtue. This is the the summum bonum of Christian living. This is what Paul calls the greatest thing, love. At the heart of my worship toward God is that accompanying kindness towards my brother. At the heart of that kindness toward my brother is the love of God poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit that's been given to me. That's where that love comes from. There's the pursuit. There's the pursuit. We pursue goodness. We pursue virtue. We pursue moral excellence. That means being more like whom? Jesus Christ. Diligently, zealously, with all of our energies, with all of our strength, we apply ourselves to a lavish degree to lay alongside what Christ has lavishly already done for us, the maximum effort in the pursuit of these things. That sums it up, doesn't it? The first thing is we pursue virtue. We pursue goodness. We pursue moral excellence. Spiritual heroism, if you will. Which means that we really are pursuing love, the highest and the noblest kind of love which will then be reflected in kindness to others, rising out of a deep reverence for our beloved God, leading to a courageous, steadfast, joyful self-control under temptation, built on spiritual discernment and the consuming, compelling pursuit to be like Jesus. When you think about it, it's just one big circle. It's just one big circle. It just keeps going and going and going and going. Increasing, 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 increasing. At its foundation is what? Faith. And it culminates in love. It culminates in love. What a pursuit. What a pursuit. We have everything in Christ, he says, and yet we are to add to what we have in Christ with maximum effort. Moral excellence, moral virtue, practical wisdom, internal self-control, endurance in all temptations, God-conscious reverence, brotherly kindness, and pervasive love to God and to everyone else. I think there's enough there to keep us occupied, don't you? Question. Question. Write this down. Write this down. What? am I pursuing? What am I devoting the energies of my life to pursue? If not these seven virtues, then you're pursuing the wrong thing. If you're pouring all your energy into other things and and ignoring these seven virtues, you're pursuing the wrong thing. Peter says if these things are in your life, look at verses 8 and 9, he says if these things are in your life and increasing, you're going to be what? Fruitful. And you're not going to forget You're not going to doubt. You're not going to worry about You're not going to be forgetful and fearful of whether or not you've been saved. In other words, you're going to enjoy total assurance. Beloved, God doesn't want to take away your assurance. He wants you to enjoy it. He wants you to enjoy it. God doesn't want to make you miserable. He doesn't want to make you doubting. He doesn't want to make you fearful and worrying. He wants to make you joyful and confident. God doesn't want to make you question whether you'll make it to heaven. He doesn't want you to live in a constant quandary over that matter. He wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he wants you to live in confident hope. And by the way, to experience that, to experience that, to live in that confident hope is not to let go and let God. It's not to let go and let God. If you're used to using that phrase, just banish it from your language. Banish it from your biblical texts. Not to let go and let God. When these are the realities in your life, there is confidence of salvation. But when the false teachers come along, they have nothing to offer you. Nothing to offer you. For knowledge, they want to give you empty and hollow philosophies. For self-control, they want to give you license. For enduring in temptation, they want to give you succumbing to temptation. And for reverence for God, they want to give you irreverence. And for the love of God's children, they want to give you resentment of God's children. Do not the pagans resent the children of God. And for true love, they want to give you lust. But... If these qualities are increasing in your life, these false teachers are not going to be a problem to you. Right? Not at all. Not if you possess these virtues in increasing measure, because you have diligently applied yourself to supply them in your life, adding them to your faith. The last two points we're going to have to leave till next time, and they will bring us a very, 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 very powerful conclusion to this passage. Amen? Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for your word to us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the way to go and the virtues that we are to pursue. Fathers, we come to your table now. Help us to remember these things and, Lord, to commit ourselves to this pursuit of becoming more like you. We thank you and we love you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.